0: 600 ESPN El
1: Hard to believe the week's uh, almost over, but nonetheless, uh, we bring you Sports Talk on a Friday afternoon. Good to have you back, everybody. Steve Kaplow, it's along with Adrian Broadus, coming your way today, uh, like every day, from our 600 ESPN El Paso uh, Lubingo Studios, as the broadcasts uh, continue like they have for about the last three weeks, uh, with uh, yours truly broadcasting from home, and uh, also Adrian Broadus uh, out at the 600 ESPN El Paso Studio in the control room at 4180 North Mesa. want to remind all of you that uh, Lubingo uh, is uh, here for you Monday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. to help you and your vehicle uh, get safe and ready for the road ahead. In fact, uh, because Lubingo is uh, considered essential to the community during this time, uh, they are open, and you can even, if you feel uh, more comfortable, stay in your vehicle as your vehicles are getting serviced. That's what it's all about, folks. From the folks out at Lubingo here in El Paso. Hang on one second. Do you want this or no? Do you want? Do you want to just listen in? I'll just listen. All right, thank you. I wasn't sure. Um, It's always fun when you get a little visitor, and he starts uh, the afternoon off, and you don't know if uh, he wants to leave or wants to stay, so it sounds like, for now, he wants to stay, Adrian, which is always a good sign. Hey, speaking of good signs, today's show is going to be amazing. Uh, JR, Jim Ross, is going to join us in just about 15 minutes from now. You can follow him on Twitter at JR's Barbecue. That is at JR's Barbecue. Uh, Jim's got a new book out called Under the Black Hat, My Life in the WWE and beyond. So Jim Ross, the book uh, just uh, came out, Uh, will join us uh, to talk about under the Black Hat, which, by the way, had a chance to read it. It is a terrific, terrific book. Um, I don't think I've ever gone through a book uh, that's uh, almost 300 pages, Adrian, in three days. And that's pretty much the kind of read it was because you're interested in this. And I'll talk more about this with Jr. when he joins us uh, coming up next segment. He gets you behind the scenes where you kind of you already know the storylines, but then you get to find out behind the curtain just how it played out out with Vince and the entire group at the WWE which really makes it a very fun read
2: that's awesome and you know it's uh it's a great book when you can power through it and pretty much read it right away and just uh kind of maneuver yourself through 300 pages I mean that's when you know it's it's a easy uh easy one to read and such a great book to to uh, go through
1: no doubt. So we'll get Jr. on the program coming up at 4:20. Then at five o'clock, Russ Bradbird's going to join us. Now, Russ uh, is not the focus of the Don Haskins Radio Show tonight. However. He was on the same staff with Norm Ellenberger. Norm Ellenberger is the focus because you'll hear a great conversation between the two from August of 2006 when John Teicher sat in with us again and joined us for that great show. So uh, Russ Bradbury, 5 o'clock, and then we'll profile the uh, Norm uh, Ellenberger guest spot on the Don Haskins Hour coming up at 6. So that is our plan for today, Adrian. <laughs> I got. I'm telling you, I've never had somebody so. Uh, he just. He's dying to get on the program right now. Dying to get on the show.
2: Hi, Adrian.
1: Hey, what's up, Joel? How are you? Good. You do know we're doing a live radio show here, right? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's live. <laughs> well, you, th- you think I'm just practicing? No, this is the real stuff, kiddo. Um, you want to tell anybody about uh, how your week's been going?
2: Pretty good. I just traded cards with my cousin from Pokemon, and um, I've been hanging out with my dad sometimes on the air, and um, it's been pretty good.
1: How about learning online this week, because you started your online classes at school?
2: Yeah, kind of. Um, some of the stuff I've done in first grade, because they said out they will do the exact same thing in second grade. Like, they'll teach me second grade stuff. So, I, some of it I know, some of it I don't know, but I understand it really good and I'm learning.
1: When would you like to have your own radio show where you do this every day?
2: I don't know. Probably when I'm either, like, 30 to 25 years, maybe... Mm-hmm. 30 years, something like that.
1: I think that's a great answer. I love that. Alright, listen. Um, thank you. You've done great, and uh, I'm going to get back to uh, the, re- the regular show right now, okay? Is that alright with you?
2: Okay, that's fine.
1: Alright, thanks Joel. Um, as far as the uh, Twitter handle goes today at 600 ESPN El Paso, uh, looking at <laughs> That was awesome, today. Steve. Come on, oh, that was he great. He makes me laugh, especially when I said, "How old are you tell oh, you?" I'm 30 or 25 from now. That's when I'll, I'll get started in radio. So that's good. I like it. you could you could hopefully do it sooner than that. Yeah, you know?
2: I'll try to do it sooner than that.
1: All right, thank you very much. I'm happy you're my co-host uh, for the start of the <laughs> show today. Um, here we go. Uh, today was big because today was 12 five, and uh, also the four thirteens for the round of 64. So looking at the matchups and the votes for our 64 best players like we start off every show. Let's go through the 512s right now. Gus Bailey against George Banks. Now, this was interesting because so far we are midway through the poll, dead even, 50-50. How about that, Adrian? Getting started at 600 ES El Paso on Twitter, 50% have Gus Bailey, 50% say George Banks. Wow. That is a, that's a good one.
2: So. Yeah, we're, we're getting some really close ones now that we're starting to get into the heat of this contest, right?
1: I think so, too. By the way, I'm, I'm fascinated with the Juden Smith-Wayne Soup-Campbell. I didn't think this would be as close, all right? I know Soup was popular. I know Juden was the beast. But right now, we've got a... 54-46 margin in favor of soup as the 12 seed over Juden as the five seed so we said that the 12 fives could be the best upsets Well, george banks is dead even with gus bailey bailey's the five banks is the 12 how about right now campbell is a 12 seed leading Juden smith 54-46 in that matchup
2: wow steve what an upset right there i mean can we can we take some can we take some clarification right now because I I don't understand why uh, Wayne Soup Campbell although he's a great guy and you, we loved having him on the show a, a couple weeks ago why he's beating Juden Smith because it, it's a no brainer for me Juden Smith should easily have won this one.
1: I'm with you on that one, but it's not the case. And soup is soup's going to be really happy, especially the next time he gets to talk to um, you know to Smith and tell Juden about this voting. Um, Anthony Burns, Greg Foster, to me is another one that that absolutely surprised me. Foster came in as the 12 seed, Burns is the five. Anthony Burns had an unbelievable career at UTEP, especially his junior and senior year. He was amazing. Well, guess what? Craig Foster has seventy nine percent of the vote right now. Anthony Burns with twenty one percent. That one absolutely shocks me. As uh, you know, the votes continue at six hundred ESPN El Paso on Twitter.
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of these right now, Steve, are, are really surprising to me. I, I'm looking at them, and I, I we expected there would be a day where we'd start getting upsets, but I didn't think it would be today where we're just seeing upset after upset. Neville Shed leading Fred Reynolds right now. Also, like you said, Greg Foster leading Anthony Burns. This is just crazy right now that we're seeing all these upsets. The only
1: uh, game, uh, matchup that's not an upset is Jeep Jackson over Dominic Artis as the 512 goes. Uh, 91% have voted for Jeep, just 9% for Dominic Artis, who also had a terrific uh, run at UTEP, kind of did it all. But hey, it's going to be tough to beat Jeep Jackson no matter where you are. So that one is a, a little bit of a runaway right now. Let's look at the 413s. Orston Artis against Chris Blocker. Right now, 77%. Orston Artis. 23% for Chris Blocker. Fred Reynolds and Neville Shed. Fred comes in as the four seed. Neville is the 13 seed. If you want to know how close this one is right now, how about 5545? Shed leading Reynolds. So Shedd is the 13th seed, has a lead on Fred Reynolds. But again, long way to go till 9 a.m. tomorrow. Fred had a ridiculous career played for team USA in the Pan Am Games he was a, he was with Jordan in that group and as we all know, Fred uh, you know, suffered some injuries, which led him to a long career in Europe. Uh, were you surprised to see that Sheds leading Reynolds, or is that just the power of the 66 team?
2: Yeah, for me, it's the power of the 66 team. Everybody's holding on to that. And, you know, I, I understand why people would pick Neville Shed, who averaged almost 10 points a game and 7.5 and rebounds, had 20 double-doubles in his career, and, of course, helped the minors to the 1966 National Championship. Chip. We'll talk about Glory Road in a little bit because that's going to be airing tonight on ESPN. Philly Rivera against Willie Worsley as a 4
1: 13 matchup. Philly, the 4 seed, Worsley, the 13 seed. Again, close. 52-48 Rivera leading Willie Worsley um, and that's with 17 hours left on the voting. So that's another one that could go right down to the wire. So many of these are close. Finally David Van Dyke the 13th seed Charlie Brown the four seed again the biggest problem for Charlie Brown you got to use a media guide to find his stats because he played from 56 to 59 although he was very prolific for Texas Western. David Van Dyke 88-92 to 92. currently Van Dyke leading this one 71 to 29 so van dyke and jeep jackson with the largest margins of uh, victory right now Um, and everything else is very close and all the other 512s and 413s it's fascinating
2: Going back to Charlie Brown, a guy who played in the '50s for the Miners, he scored over a thousand points in 67 games and was a three-time All Borderland Conference selection. So you know that's another tough one right there, Steve. A guy who dominated the '50s, but David Van Dyke, product of the late '80s, and all minor fans, you know, clinging on to guys who were very special to them as as far as they are, as far as it goes when it comes to fan and icons when it when it comes to the Miners in the '80s.
1: You realize that as we get deeper into this, it's going to get much tougher for people. They think this is tough. Just wait till we start to have even crazier dream matchups coming up next week as we get ourselves down to the Sweet 16 and eventually the Final Four
2: and and crowning our champion. Oh, I'm with you, Steve. Today I was doing some of the matchups. I found out next week we're going to see Bobby Joe Hill versus Julian Washburn. We'll see Vince Hunter versus Gillespie. We'll also see Jim Barnes versus Jason Williams. Some great early matchups next week as well so i'm excited for the brackets to kind of shape up and go to form
1: absolutely all right a message just came in a little while ago on the app chat from san fran sam the message just says "Jolie, smart uh sharp kid loved his assessment of his week of remote learning timely contemporary commentary just what this show needs there we go. See, we try to bring it to you, San Fran. We don't, we don't shy around here on the program today. So I'm happy you enjoyed that uh, commentary. Great. Anyway, you want in, you can also uh, not only tweet us at 600 ESPN El Paso, but also connect on the app, just like San Fran Sam did a moment ago. All right. We've got a terrific show uh, in store for you today. Coming up next, Jr. Jim Ross and his new book, Under the Black Hat, came out on uh, Tuesday of this week. He's going to join us live on our Village Inn hotline right after Charlie One, who has a traffic update for us, getting going on a Friday. Charlie, uh, how are we doing starting out today?
0: 600 ESPN El Paso.com.
1: So excited about our next guest as we welcome you back to the program and continue uh, here on Sports Talk. Uh, joining us live right now is uh, one of the great iconic voices in uh, sports entertainment, professional wrestling. He's got a brand new book out called "Under the Black Hat: My Life in the WWE and Beyond." He is Jim Ross. Says he gets us going here on the show. Jr. Good to have you back in El Paso, and uh, congratulations on the new book
0: oh thank you very much always good to talk to you guys i need some good food
1: well i'll tell you what for a guy that's got his own line of barbecue telling us he needs some good food uh we could almost say the same to you we need we need our fix of uh, jr's barbecue (laughs) here in el paso that's good good to hear Now, I remember you were on the sidelines when UTEP was playing Oklahoma at the Sun Bowl years ago. One of the things you didn't talk a lot about in the book, but it's pretty obvious for those that know you, you get the opportunity to accompany the Sooners uh, during certain games uh, each season. And I remember when uh, Landry Jones was uh, in that one, and it was when Mike Price was coaching the Miners, and you were right there on the sidelines, which was actually a pretty entertaining football game.
0: Yeah, I... uh... Coach Seuss took good care of me for 20 years, so I created some great memories. Really did.
1: No doubt. Um, this book is the kind of book that ropes you in when you start and you can't put it down and I was trying to figure out why that was the case for me because I don't normally get through books that are almost 300 pages in length in about three or four days but JR I think what I like so much about your latest effort is you go behind the scenes and for those that have followed the WWE knew the storylines knew the outcomes you took it a step further because you kind of took everybody into that uh, behind-the-curtain uh, stage where you got to see you, Vince, the wrestlers, in a totally different, uh, totally different light.
0: Yeah, in reality.
1: Exactly. That's a that's a great way to put it. Reality is illusion. Well.
0: Yeah, illusionary. Uh, it's, it's a, a the art to a certain degree because the the performers do their own stunts. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting genre, to say the least. It's a poor man's Broadway, I guess. But uh, I, my book is a, is about me and my journey and all the things that happened to me, either uh, professionally or personally, and it's a matter of enduring. And I had a buddy of mine that uh, sent this book to. He was on the road, I think, or was away, and his wife got it. And she wouldn't let him have it back until she finished it because she said it was a love story. So I had never thought I'd ever write a love story. But I did talk globally in the book about my wife, my late wife, and the role she played behind the scenes as the uh, the head of talent relations, the head of the talent roster's wife, and the role she played that she took on and created herself. It's a great story. It's got a good ending. And I uh, hope folks will just try it out. My website, JRSBBQ.com, where I sell barbecue sauce and all that good stuff, is uh, we have a special offer on the book that includes a free shipping option at JRSBBQ.com. So folks are listening. You can check it out. It's costs awesome nothing to look
1: now you mentioned uh, this being uh, you know a-, a love story which I completely agree with you and and I'm wondering there's there's really I think two love stories in this book one is your love for you and Jan your your wife who who you lost a few years ago but the other is wrestling and I think that sometimes they 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 merge together as she supports you through what you went through uh, both uh, physically and mentally but also you know really if you think about it lo- the- your love for wrestling will never end just like your love for jan will never end
0: wrestling was always my to of a better term mistress and sometimes i felt like she didn't love me back but at the end of the day because i could still communicate and that's the key thing in a lot of these areas is communicating and being true to yourself uh i came out on the other side whole uh, i had 25 great years with a wonderful woman and uh, the best thing ever happened to me, She's my best friend, my, my, uh, my muse, my, the most positive person I ever met, and a hell of a cook. <laughs> so uh, when you got two Italian grandmothers that, that immigrated, or is that, was that the right word, immigrated from Italy? Mm-hmm. Uh, she, my wife was a heck of a star in the kitchen as well, so uh, a lot of great memories. But I'm, I'm, I think folks are going to like this book. It's a real story about a real guy's life that could have been them. I'm not special. I was a good old boy from Oklahoma that is, uh, got somehow or another backed into the pro wrestling business. And I've loved it pretty much since 1974.
1: Now, you've written two cookbooks. You also wrote a book about your life called Slobberknocker. When did you decide that you wanted to go in-depth and, and really go more, more detail with your WWE years and put this together?
0: It was all about the timeline. Sloverknocker, which is still selling, uh, praise the Lord, uh, was, uh, was my first part of the autobiography that took us through when Stone Cold beat Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 14, I think it was. And so I had all the stories left to tell. I hadn't talked about the, uh, the the Monday Night Wars, the WCW and Turner. I had not talked about the Attitude Era, which was the biggest in the history of the wrestling business. I had not talked about the XFL, the original XFL, and talked about being moved being moved from Raw to SmackDown, getting two more belts, the belts palsy, uh, almost dying from a from a, 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 a perforated intestine, and then uh, losing my wife. All those things happened. And the main thing I wanted to do was to give her due. I've said this in other interviews. Like it seems to be applicable. It seems to be make, make sense. This is this book is my last public hug to my late wife. And so I mean I, I think about her every day. I'll never get her out of my mind. But for publicly, this is the last salute for her, to her. And I think this thing fits especially in women the this aspect. Everything The she and uh, you know, she did. She'd cook dinner for these guys. So they come over to my house. They ate. They ate good. And uh, and she would even do laundry for them. I remember her doing laundry for Stone Cold. Who've been on the road about two weeks and did his gear washed. She didn't care. She was happy to help. She she loved making people smile, and, and that's just her her demeanor. And I don't know how in the hell I got her, but bottom line is I had 25 great years with her.
1: I don't think people um, knew that you were so in depth as the head of talent relations. So when you were not calling matches for Vince, especially in some of those great years in the late '90s, you were handling—you uh, were handling booking, you were handling payroll, and just describing how guys got paid. It sounds like it was a grueling amount of pressure and stress when you had to hand a professional wrestler a weekly check.
0: Well, it, well, it could be. It- Oftentimes it was because of the system that we used to derive the to derive those paychecks. It, <clears throat> it was called discretionary income. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it wasn't a secret. Everybody knew what the procedures were when they when they hired on. But, you know, I had a very busy time with that. Uh, on Mondays, you know, we're doing Monday Night Raw. On Tuesdays, uh, I would go to SmackDown because all the talents would be there. And you know, it was important for me to be there with the talents, to settle their issues or address their issues or give them some positive encouragement, whatever it may be. Talk to their, they always had issues. Everybody's got issues. So that was that. Then on Wednesday morning, I was back in my office at Stanford. And by Friday, uh, I had the, had the payroll done and turned into accounting so these dudes could get paid. So it was, uh, it was the Saturday and Sunday, we had live events. So I'd be on the phone every Saturday and Sunday with the uh, road agents, the road producers, about what we wanted to do that night, and to get a report of how the boys are doing, and how's this guy's ankle, This guy's back okay, or so and so was a little groggy, whatever. You know, so it was a seven-day-a-week deal, but I loved it. It was the sad part about it. I almost loved it more. Well, I did love. It. I loved it more than I loved my family at times. Mm-hmm. Golly, that's bad, and that's dangerous, and it's embarrassing. But I'm just being honest, and this book is about honesty.
1: At the same time, you were there so much. You were spending so much time in Connecticut working, uh, you know, that's the thing people don't realize. This is not a 40 hour week job. It's probably a 100 plus hour week job because that's Vince's attitude towards everything. And he expects everyone to be like, like, like his work ethic. So you're there a lot. And not only are you handling wrestlers, but you're signing guys. I mean, you talked about the group that right around the uh, you know the 2000-2001 the period was was uh, in the Ohio Valley Wrestling, which at that time was kind of the feeder to the WWF, later the WWE, you had John Cena, you had uh, Brock Lesnar, uh, you had Dave Bautista, you had Randy Orton. It's a who's who of some of the best wrestlers we've seen in the last 20 years, and those are all guys you had signed that were just kind of honing their craft as they could then make their debut uh, a few years later.
0: So yeah, they were all the same class. Uh, it was a pretty impressive class. We got very lucky on that. You know, Jerry Briscoe worked diligently to get Brock signed. We started recruiting Brock when he was a junior in college, but made an agreement with his wrestling coach that we would not sign him until his, after his senior year in the NCAA tournament. Uh, but, you know, we had a real good team of people looking for talent. Uh, and, and, and I, I love that part of the job. I've often said that. You know, so many guys that I signed are now in the Hall of Fame, and so many of the guys that I signed are, are independently, they're financially secure. And probably a more, more, bigger percentage than ever in the wrestling business, which is a great thing. So I'm probably prouder of the fact that I facilitated an opportunity to give a, to get a guy's jerseys and get on the team. And then when you get on the team, you got your jersey, can you make plays? Can you be reliable? I've always said, someone said, what's the greatest trait you want? You sign these guys. And, what was the trait you're looking for? It's very simple. One word, reliability. It's not biceps. It's not triceps. It's not tattoos. It's reliability. Because if I can't rely on you, then why am I spending any time on you? Because I don't know you're going to be here tomorrow. So that sounds kind of drastic, but that's the way I look at those things.
1: Jim Ross, the voice of wrestling, he's got his new book out, Under the Black Hat, which you can pick up at uh, com, also wherever books are sold. I just noticed something I didn't even realize. Your pose in the new book is virtually the same as the pose you struck in your book, Slobber or My Life in Wrestling.
0: There's a reason for that. You can't shine doo-doo. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) there's not a hell of a lot you can do with that old face, I can tell you that right now. You know, that's always been one of my fears. When I lost my smile, not because of my attitude or, or mentality, you know, the Bell palsy has taken a toll on me. So the, the remnants of that hideous little thing was I can't smile. My grandchildren, she turned one of my granddaughters, turned 17 yesterday. She's never seen Grandpa smile. So I'd, I have to live with that. And as an on-air person, that becomes a little daunting if you allow it to happen. So here you got this, this, this uh, chubby guy that's 68 that can't smile, and you got him on TV? Are you kidding? So uh, I, I kind of battle that internally on an on-again, off-again basis. So it's just the, the way the hand has been dealt. And you play the hand that's dealt. That's what you do.
1: You're also brutally honest in the book when you talk about your WWE days, especially your decision to leave Connecticut, go back home to Oklahoma, and kind of the uh, the repercussions that followed as a result of that. And then you chronicled your, t- your days in the ring and what it was like to, to wrestle. You never sounded comfortable, but you did what you would. You were like the company man that said, you want me to wrestle, I'll wrestle. You want me to, 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 to bleed in the ring, I'll do that as well. You pretty much were the kind of guy that would always give everybody, like in terms of Vince, what he what he wanted no matter what the situation was
0: well i was thank you i, I try to do my job i learned a lesson from my dad you know learned a lot of lessons from him and one of them was is that if you're going to take a man's money then do what he asks you to do you know do your job in other words uh if you sign on to do a job then do that job or, or stop taking his cash and i was uh, i enjoyed that cash awful lot quite frankly, growing up in a a four-room concrete block house that was a converted dairy barn. I didn't even have an indoor toilet until the fourth grade, so it wasn't like I was born into a a lap of royalty. I worked for everything I've got, and this book indicates that, that how important that is, and not giving up on your dreams. I had a dream when I left WWE, when my contract expired, and I didn't want to renegotiate. I had a dream to get back on the air. And for me, I didn't know what shape it was going to take then tony khan came along the owner of aew and uh, all my prayers were answered
1: and that's where you are right now in fact somebody that uh, we know quite well because uh, she's been on the show uh, many times with uh, her relationship to her now husband cody decker i'm talking about jennifer decker is uh, one of your colleagues out there at aew
0: yes jen does a great job you know we uh, she's just like a little uh, niece to me you know I, I i enjoy being around her she's got great energy I, you know, I've been on her Cody's radio show. I'm proud of the work that Cody does. He's really trying to help the community. I think that's a very big thing. And uh, but they're a great couple, and she's very talented. Uh, you know, I'm glad. I'll be glad when this virus thing is over, and we can get back to some semblance of normalcy. I don't know how much we're going to be able to return, but I do think that we'll return to some normalcy. And I, I enjoy being around her. So yeah, she, she's a dandy.
1: You wrap up the book with those AEW days and kind of conclude it with what you're doing right now. I've heard so many people that talk about AEW say that everything is doing right. It's almost like it's a throwback to wrestling when it was at its peak. They like the storylines. They like the way everything's done, the production angle. Is that pretty much what helped sell you on this as well, is that it's been, uh, it's been handled the right way when you talk about the presentation and the product?
0: I've never been—I've never been more impressed with a quote-unquote civilian, i.e., a non-wrestling person, than I was when I met Tony Khan, and more impressed with his wrestling intellect, his recall. He was telling me comments I made in a match that aired before he was born. So I mean, this guy's—pardon me—a major fan. I respected that. He respected the business. He respected me, you know, and I heard more than once from him that I was the voice of his childhood. So, you know, I knew that we had a common bond. He wanted an athletic presentation. More often than not, you got to have some entertainment. you got to have some sizzle to go with a steak, and that's an interesting balance. Uh, so it's very subjective. But I, 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 Tony Khan was the guy that <clears throat> put me back in the game, and, you know, I'm not flying right now because I'm in the uh, – Uh, high risk group for this virus Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact i'm sitting out in front of my grocery store right now getting ready to make my my every two or three days run to get some groceries uh so i'm just trying to be careful and smart and that's nothing those are two things quite frankly that i'm not known for over my lifetime being careful and being smart
1: i'll wrap this up with a couple of things before we end it in the book, you chronicle a time when you were expecting to be announcing a match in WrestleMania that um, you had been requested on. And and one of those guys was um, Shawn Michaels, and the other one was The Undertaker. And you found out when you arrived that you would be called off and not uh, broadcasting. And you later mentioned right. that... After the match, you were summoned, and both wrestlers, when they finished and and got everything done, wanted to have you with them to kind of celebrate their careers, the match, and everything else. And you said you spent hours just uh, drinking some uh, some beer and some other things, talking, telling (laughs) stories. Sounded like, really, for you, as great as the Hall of Fame might have been in terms of your peers, this had to be one of the lifetime achievements.
0: It was. You know, two of the greats to ever perform in a a wrestling ring, two all-time greats of any generation, any generation, they're going to be stars. Uh, So I I really love those guys. You know, Coach Barry Switzer said, when you recruit somebody, you recruit them for life. And even though I didn't recruit Shawn Michaels to WWE, his original run, I did help get him back for his last run, and he's still there. Uh, I saw Undertaker wrestling under a mask in Dallas, and I said, <clears throat> we gotta bring him to Atlanta when I was at WCW. So I've had a hand in the careers, but small hands, but I, I love that all those, those buses were in a big circle or, or a square. And in the middle of it, we had a, a, a fire and uh, music and cold beer and stories of our, uh, how we loved our business. And it was, a, it was probably, as I probably had as more fun, quite frankly, because it's so unique as I would have called the match, quite honestly. But at the time, I was really upset because the thing about wrestling or entertainment in general is that when you show weakness, it makes you very vulnerable, at least in your, in your own mind. And I think it's more true than not. So I just felt like, well, you know, Vince just didn't believe that I was healed enough for my last bout of Bell's palsy. And look, quite frankly, he may have been right. He may have been right. It worked out okay because I stayed. At, I stayed in play. I stayed in play, and then that that moment happened with Sean and Taker, and it'll be always it'll be something I'll always remember. I'm glad you brought it up. Thanks.
1: Let's wrap it up with this. Give me your Mount Rushmore of wrestling and your Mount Rushmore of wrestling announcers, which obviously uh, w- should uh, include you. But let me get your thoughts on that. Mount Rushmore of wrestlers, Mount Rushmore of uh, of announcers.
0: Well, of wrestlers, it would be uh, Ric Flair, Stone Cold, The Rock. And Hulk Hogan. And there could be tomorrow you could ask that same question. I might make a few changes. But right now off the top of my head, that's my my Mount Rushmore. Uh um announcers, obviously Gordon Soley, Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan, Lance Russell. Bob Cottle. Let's do that. Bob Coddle, Lance Russell, Gordon Soley, and Gorilla Monsoon.
1: All right. There's a lot of people that would disagree and put you in that list as well, and you know that. So thanks for the modesty. Uh, The book is terrific. I can't recommend it enough. Under the Black Hat, My Life in the WWE and Beyond. Pick it up on his website, jrsbarbecue.com, and while you're there, you can get some uh, some sauce. You can get books autographed. They've got free shipping going on. JR, you've done it again. I appreciate the time, and thanks so much for uh, being uh, kind and gracious and sharing some stories with us on the air today.
0: You bet, buddy. And by the way, I always forget this. Uh, walmart.com target.com it's at borders and it's on amazon so there's a lot of ways without leaving your house to, to acquire this book so maybe this doggone virus is a blessing in disguise for that particular aspect if we get one win out of this damn thing it, that's a good day
1: well said all right go get that shopping done out there at the grocery store and thanks for the time jr
0: <laughs> you got it buddy thank you
1: Jim Ross uh, joining us here on uh, Sports Talk again. Follow him on Twitter at Jr's Barbecue as we continue. Come back with more. Stay with us. Sports Talk continues. Six hundred ESPN El Paso.
0: Six hundred ESPN El Paso.com.
1: 10 in front of five right now as we continue on sports talk. My thanks again to uh, Jim Ross, which I, uh, you know, I've been really looking forward to this interview and I'm telling you folks, that book is, it's awesome. It's a great read. It's definitely uh, highly recommended and it's a, it's a fast read. You get started. You're going to, you're not going to want to put it down. And I mean that because I I think I went through this book in, in three or four days max, and uh, it's not like me to to pick up a book and, and read it as quickly as that. But I'm telling you, under the black hat, if you uh, are a wrestling fan and and have followed it over the years, you'll, you'll really uh, you'll get a kick out of this story. It's uh, it's terrific. Anyway, uh, as we continue here on Sports Talk, eight eight zero five seven. Six three. That is our telephone number. I'm also really excited about having Russ Bradburn back with us at five o'clock, Adrian, because he's going to talk a lot about those late '80s teams when uh, Norm Ellenberger was uh, a, a, an assistant coach with him on the staff. And you know, those two, along with the Bear, a lot of NCAA tournament appearances, a lot of great runs, and a lot of great memories. And we'll have some of those memories when we replay the Don Haskins Hour with Russ Bradbury. Uh, I sorry with uh, with um, Norm Ellenberger coming up at 6 o'clock.
2: Yeah, I'm very excited for this, Steve, because, uh, you know, we've been talking about the 80s a lot on the show, whether it's, you know, reliving it on the Don Haskins hour or when we're doing our all-time UTEP men's basketball bracket and bringing up some of the best players. But, man, those 80s were incredible. Some of the best runs out there in UTEP athletics uh, histories and, uh, you know, some of the best NCAA runs that we've seen in a long time, too.
1: I'm always, I'm, I'm kind of interested now as we look at the voting today. And there's a lot of time to still finish your get your votes in at 600 ESPN El Paso on Twitter. As we finish, by the end of today, we'll have the round of 32. It will be done and decided. What has been the biggest surprise uh, to you? Is it uh, that there are certain players that you just expect to get a lot more love in the votes that just quite frankly haven't received it yet?
2: Yes, and also the kind of the generational gap. I think that's the biggest surprise for me is that you know the 80s are kind of dominating, especially the late 80s, early 90s, and then there's a little bit of a gap. You, you see a little bit of rise between uh, the 2000s and maybe the late 2000 uh, tw- like around 2010, and then there's a big gap between uh, the 70s and the 80s. I mean I, I think that there hasn't been a lot of traction for some of the older players in this UTEP men's basketball bracket.
1: No, you're right. There hasn't been. And yet the top seeds are pretty much all the, you know, what we thought they would be. But I've been fascinated by how close these these four and, and fifth seeds are going against uh, 12 and 13 seeds. That's what surprised me the most.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a really close matchup right now. I think that uh, since we started the show, we've had a little bit more traction. I look at that Wayne Campbell and Juden Smith matchup, and now the gap has been narrowed a little bit more. Juden Smith's starting to pick up some steam there. So, hey, maybe you look at that and say the gap could be closed, and, hey, could Juden Smith overtake Wayne Campbell and win this one out? Well, I mean,
1: again, when we took the air, it had been about seven hours of voting, so we still had 17, 18 hours left. And you know that gives people a lot of time once they hit the show to start uh, casting their ballots. But you're right. Going to be interested to see what happens, just like I'm going to be interested in our next guest. Russ Bradbury's going to join us. Stay with us as that conversation just moments away uh, here on Sports Talk. And we'll also uh, get calls uh, for, you know, if you have questions or comments on the phones or on Twitter or also on the free mobile app. Powered by United Bank, you can get into the program that way. Looking at uh, some of the app tweets or the app chat messages. Soup Campbell was at UTEP for six years because of injuries, and he did games on radio. So younger fans remember the uh, the name better. Juden Smith should be ahead. Better player, um, all-whack, Sun Bowl tournament MVP, and all-tournament, but... Not always the case. Not always the case, Pinky. Good stuff. We'll come back with more and get to uh, Coach Russ Bradburn as we continue. It's Sports Talk and 600 ESPN El Paso.
0: 600 Paso.com.
1: Hour number two, Sports Talk is underway. Welcome back, everybody. Along with Adrian Broaddus, I'm Steve Kaplow. It's coming your way from our 600 ESPN El Paso Lubingo Studios as we get ready for a busy weekend uh, actually, the weekend's going to kick off uh, in a little bit because we've got Glory Road on ESPN. We've got Norm Ellenberger on the Don Haskins Hour. And uh, because we lost uh, Storm and Norman uh, a little while ago, we've got uh, one of his former assistant coaches at UTEP joining us live on our Village Inn hotline where all of our guests always appear. And uh, his name is Russ Bradbird, who is a former minor assistant coach, and a MSU assistant coach, uh, head coach in Ireland, and he's the uh, also a, a best-selling author Author of multiple books, and he joins us live to begin our second hour of the program. You know, your introduction has really grown since I first started interviewing you on this show. It used to be just former minor assistant coach in the late '90s when I took over, and now it's taken on a whole new level. Trying to get everything in, I didn't even get a chance to mention broadcaster. Uh, it
3: seems like seems like the the good old the good old days are long gone. Steve, can you hear me okay? I've got my headset on.
1: Yeah, you sound good. Can you hear us all right, Russ?
3: Yep, I can hear you fine. Yeah, it seems like back you know, I remember I used to gauge my life by how few keys I had. The less keys, the happier I was. And as my but although I'm I'm plenty happy now. Let's talk about Norm Ellenberger.
1: Let's do it because, you know, a lot of minor fans remember Norm from when he started at New Mexico first as an assistant in 67 and then took over the Lobos from 72 to 79, had some amazing seasons, and then after that, he kind of uh, was out of basketball after um, what was a scandalous end at New Mexico in uh, 1979, but nonetheless, he came back as a UTEP assistant in 1986. And if I'm not mistaken, that's like a, what, a, a year, about a year after you joined the staff. Did you join in 85, Russ? 83. Uh, 83, 83 I joined. So it was when when Tim Floyd left. I
3: think Coach Haskins felt like you know I was just a kid what was I maybe 20 I guess I was 27 or something like that and I think I think uh, Coach Haskins felt like he needed a, a an older sort of vet wise veteran on the staff and, and Norm had tremendous wisdom.
1: Well I know that uh, Coach Haskins was very loyal with Norm from their coaching days together. He didn't like the way he left at New Mexico and wanted uh, you know him on his staff. How controversial was it in El Paso when Ellenberger joined the group in 86?
3: I don't think well, I think there was there was there was pushback from the administration, I think as and, and probably for for good reason. I think the the administration was extremely concerned about they didn't want to pay Norm he was a volunteer at first and so one of the sort of the little known facts uh that that I will disclose here publicly for the first time is that coach Haskins called us all in and said I really want to do this but you know we don't have any money he wanted all of us to contribute uh each month to to come up with a salary for Norm and so each month all of us Greg Lackey and uh uh, G. Ray Johnson and myself and Coach a- Maybe G. Ray didn't have to because he was making so little himself at first. But we all contributed a few hundred dollars every month. And uh, and Norm was sort of able to live in that way. And, and um, uh, Russ Vandenberg, the great real estate whiz in town, was able to get him a cheap apartment and, and, and provide a life for Norm Ellenberger. I think one of the interesting things about the whole story, see, besides the, the, un- the little note until right this minute, Fact that we subsidized mom's salary uh, because the university wasn't willing to pay him. Um, one of the other little-known uh, little-known little facts was uh, well, maybe not little-known fact, but the other story behind it is I think Coach Haskins was he had a great sort of eye for the downtrodden, and you know he, he, he you know like he, he never recruit anybody because of the height requirement, and he was always very good at uh, he was always very good at, at uh, You know, taking care of the little guy, support the little guy, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, he was just sympathetic towards the underdog. And, well, Norm had, of course, become a huge underdog by that time.
1: That's an amazing story. Now, I never knew that you and Lackey and, and even to some extent G-Ray all pitched in just to give Norm money. We, we were just told that Norm Ellenberger was working for free. And we thought, wow, that's amazing. Great for Norm that he's doing this for nothing to be a volunteer assisting coach. But um, I'm sure it wasn't a ton of money back then. But you guys weren't making a ton of money either. So, you know, a couple hundred bucks here and there. That, that adds up after a while.
3: It was a lot of money to me, Steve. I mean, I think it was you know so again, the reason you don't know is no one knows. I've never said it publicly but but I, we were all happy to do it i mean we all we all loved norm and uh and uh but you know three hundred dollars a month it was three hundred dollars a month'm sure it was three hundred dollars a month but you know and so that was you know uh thirty six hundred dollars a year, but you know i was you know I was paying taxes on it, and at the time when norm first came, I think I was making twenty four thousand a year so it was you know it was quite a it was quite a commitment on our part. But to say, here's what Ellenberger brought that, that people don't know, one of the people who maybe don't know is that, you know, Don Haskins was, I think he was maybe, you know, one of the greatest coaches in any sport to ever coach. But he wasn't exactly fun to be around, Steve. Now, he was fun with you because you caught him at a later time and he loved you and he was always, you know, I think he really took to you after a while. But, but he was not fun to be around. And we were all, you know, I was in my 20s and we were all sort of, uh, I don't want to say intimidated, but we walked her on eggshells all the time. You, you know, we would have meetings before the games, and I, and I learned quickly if you said something that was obvious, like we've got to do a great, we've got to do a great job on the boards tonight. He'd say, "Oh hell, Russ, everybody knows that." And, and so if it was something he, agree, he agreed with, it was you know obvious or true, he would say, "Everybody knows that." And if you said something that he didn't like, he'd say, "Oh goddamn it, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard." And so if you said something that he agreed with. He would say, you know, he would blast, you know, if he said something he disagree with. And so we all learned to keep our mouths shut. He would come in, we would all just sit there, honestly, for 15 minutes, and no one would say anything. And he might say, you know, Coach Haskins might say, uh, now don't let me forget to put Jeep Jackson in before, you know, that kind of thing. But in general, he, he we, we didn't, well, when Ellenberger came, that all changed. Because Norm, you know, was, saw him as a peer. You know, I think Norm was actually about the same age as Don. And Norm could joke with him and make fun of him and 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 tease him, and none of us would have ever. I remember looking at Greg Lackey when it first started. Was is he making fun of Coach Haskins' clip-on tie? <laughs> you know, like we would have never done that. And so what what Norm was able to do for us is he could really lighten things up. And you know Coach Haskins needed to lighten up. He was incredibly intense, and he was never happy. You know, no matter how hard the guys were working, he never thought they were working very hard. And So Norm brought something that that none of us were ever able to do. Even Tim Floyd, you know, who was very close to Coach Haskins, but Tim was so much, you know, uh, so much younger than Coach, he couldn't treat Don Haskins like that either. And so it really changed the the makeup. It loosened up the team in a really good and an important way, is that I think that the the team became more relaxed. And those were great teams. You know, that 87 team might have been the best team It might have been. I know that the Sweet Sixteen team on paper, you know, got farther in the tournament, but that eighty-seven team with Chris Blocker coming off the bench, Mm -hmm. you know, he might have been the best player in the league if he was at any other school. And so, what what Norm did was he was just fun to be around. And no, you know, all the great things you hear about Don Haskins, no one ever said he was such a fun guy.
1: As he relaxed the team and you and all the other assistants, is it fair to say that he also, to some extent, Relaxed, Coach Haskins did did Coach soften up a little bit as a result of Norm kind of being there and and, and poking fun and kind of trying to keep everybody loose.
3: Yeah, yes, and and, and I'll tell you that the the single player that that rubbed off on the most was Jeep Jackson because Jeep Jackson adopted that too. That he Jeep could kind of tease and joke. By the time he was a senior, Jeep could kind of tease and uh, you know tease Coach Haskins and joke with him. Of course, that I think that was, that was Jeep. I think that was Jeep's senior year. I guess eighty seven. But it, it, it rubbed off on Jeep, who played his best basketball when Norm Ellenberger was on the staff. And I think it was directly related to, to the, you know, to the uh, the pressure release that Norm Ellenberger provided. I mean, Norm was, you know, Norm had been 30 years older than me, but in some ways he seemed younger. You know, he, he would, he would, uh, he would you know, he would flirt with the waitress and he would joke with the kids and he'd, have a free throw contest with the guys afterwards, and he was just—he was just young at heart in, in, in all the best ways, and uh, and that really had a—that you know, really had a had a big impact on the team. We were all so very tightly wound because of—and and Steve, I should also note, you know, I mentioned that bit about us all helping with Norm's salary. That was not an NCA violation. I just want to make that clear right now. There, there was nothing illegal about. Might have been there might have been an IRS issue. Because I don't, I imagine Norm didn't
1: pay taxes on it, but I did. Don't worry, we weren't. I, the last thing I thought of is that you're going to drop a bomb that you know, 35 years later is going to put the university in trouble. Uh don't worry, the no,
3: no um, I, got, the, I got the statute of limitations. By, yeah.
1: The statute of limitations has expired, Russ. Thank God for that. Yeah, you're you're, thank,
3: you're thank good. God. Um, but, uh, yeah, so and, and so, so Norm was a, jo- a real joy in that way. But one of the things, in retrospect, now, it's easy for me to criticize Norm's career moves because I'm the guy who wind up coaching the Trilly Tigers in the Irish Super League. So I, I'm not really the right guy to criticize his career move. But I think Norm would have been a great, great NBA coach. And I think he had that that uh, sort of black mark on his record because of the Lobo Gate scandal that had got him bounced at New Mexico. But, Steve, see, I... I I being here to but but uh, i was i think i was uh, I, I you know he got bounced by the logos, and I think that any kind of academic uh black mark really you know is hard to overcome in college sports because you know college people are serious about we want to take academics seriously, and so uh i I think that but in retrospect, what I wish I could have talked norm into doing he would have been a great n b a coach and because norm was resilient in a way. The Don even Don Haskins was not as Norm didn't he you know he was able to roll you know with Don was so tightly wound and Norm was so fun loving and relaxed mm-hmm. that I think the eighty two game uh, NBA schedule would not have worn on him and Norm was good at you know, he could deal with problem guys and ego guys whereas Haskins you know it was Haskins it was my way or the highway Norm was much more flexible. And I think that, that I think that's actually more conducive to an NBA coach to have to deal with the egos and the salaries and the and 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 the and the shot and the shot and the shot uh, uh, selection, you know, that kind of thing. And, and Norm was just much more. I, I think in some ways he would have been a, because I think what happened to him is he got so addicted to the um, you know the pit is such an incredible place to play and college basketball is such a great pressure cooker and, and glamorous and. Such a life in the fast lane, and I think Norm got kind of addicted to that, and it just didn't occur to him. To go. Whereas there's other guys who have lost their jobs in college and wound up, you know, wound up coaching in the pros, and I think Norm would have been very good at that had he opted to do that. You know, I think he was forever frustrated that he could not get a head college job. So what, a lot of people don't know that while Norm was with us, Shamanade offered him the uh, the head coaching job you know, the Hawaii, the
0: NA.
3: And he decided not to take it. And I thought, you know, even then I knew that it was going to be tough for him to get a, you know, get a job at a university. And I wish, you know, I thought Norman Hawaii it would be great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just seemed mm-hmm. like a perfect move from, but that was when he went with Bob Knight instead to Indiana.
1: Well, that's interesting because you mentioned Chaminade and what they've been about. And that's another uh, fact we never knew about until this interview right now. And by the way, he did spend 3 years in the NBA. They were with Tim Floyd as an assistant with the Chicago Bulls from 2000 to 2003. Yes, yeah, he was. And I think
3: I think but by that point he was already in his 70s and it was probably too late for him to, to, to be an
1: NBA coach. Right, right. Now he was right. Sixty-eight when he when he took the job, and then I think about uh, about you know at seventy-one when he when he wrapped it up. So you're right about that. All right, this has been a great start to the hour. Stay with me, and we'll continue this conversation after the break. All right. Thanks, Russ Bradburn uh, joining us right now, longtime uh, UTEP assistant coach. We're talking about uh, Norm Ellenberger. As we continue, let's go to Charlie One. Get a traffic update. A quarter past. As sports talk continues.
0: 600 ESPN El Paso.com.
1: Back on Sports Talk as we continue right now. Again, if uh, you would like to get in on the program, comments for Coach Russ Bradbird, you can either tweet us, 600 ESPN El Paso, or also a Communicate with us through the chat feature on our free mobile app, which you can download courtesy of our friends at United Bank as we continue our conversation. Remembering the uh, the, the great legacy of uh, Norm Allenberger, who spent uh, many years here at UTEP as a, an assistant coach to Don Haskins, 1986 to 1990. After that, he spent a decade with Bobby Knight at Indiana and then years uh, with uh, Tim Floyd and in the NBA with the Chicago Bulls. And one of the things also to mention about Norm Ellenberger is, for a guy that joined UTEP when he was about 54 years old, Ellenberger always looked about 20 years younger than his real age. Are you there, Russ? Yes,
3: sorry, sorry, yes. Uh, Yeah, Norm was a fitness nut, and uh, he ate really well. He ate smart, and he had a sort of a theory that he could eat junk food once a week, and the rest of the time, you know, he would have one one sort of junky meal a week, and the rest of the time, but he was in the weight room all the time, and he was very active.
1: The joke was also that when he would come by um, when he was not coaching, and let's say, for example, he would be coming by the Haskins Center uh, during the, 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 the Sun Bowl tournament, the Sun Carnival tournament back those years to scout. He sometimes would be with a female and the female always seemed to be about 30 years younger than him. That's the one thing I remember was he always had a a very um, attractive young lady uh, at his arms, no matter what, when he was in El Paso.
3: Steve, I've already given you the big scoop. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not revealing any more than that. Uh, But yeah, he did. I mean, Norm was, as I mentioned, he was young, he was much younger than his years, and he was just full of life. And he, you know, he wanted a glass of red wine with dinner, and he wanted Mm -hmm. to relax and enjoy himself. And uh, and uh, you know, and and and, and so there was that. And I know, you know, after he left the Bulls, he wound up in, I think, either northern Wisconsin or the Upper Peninsula of, of Michigan. Wanted coaching high school and even coaching girls high school basketball. Yep. I mean, he he was a coach down to his socks. Like, look at me. I'm 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 an English professor now. I'm writing. I, I just, there, there wasn't anything else that Norm Ellenberger would have been happy doing besides you know besides coaching basketball. I mean, he was the kind of he would have coached a tree or a fire hydrant or a grade school team. He just wanted he was just wanted a coach. At, 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 you know, down to every inch of him was a coach.
1: Listen, um, I've heard this story. Um, one of the high schools he liked to coach was in Michigan. Um, it was on the lake. Uh, it was a, a, a town called Watersmeet, and the nickname of the Watersmeet high team, the girls that he coached get this. Cause I'm not making this up. They were known as the lady Nimrods.
3: I, <laughs> but I remember that sounds like the right school. And, and, uh, you know, I was not in great touch with Norm after once he went to Indiana. You know, I got out of coaching. And so there was a time when I was, you know, I was more interested in Cormac McCarthy than Neil McCarthy. And I was just, you know, I just was just sort of uh, on a different track. So I lost track of him. But a few times, I remember a couple times he came through town. We ate at La, The last time I saw Norm, we, well, we ate at La Posta, uh, And then, of course, I saw him at Don Haskins' funeral. And I think he was really wrecked. By, by Don dying, not that you know, not that it wasn't like Coach Estes died in a car crash or something. It right. was you know he was fading from the diabetes and those kinds of things. But I think he was really, re- I think he really loved Don. We all did, of course. But I think he really recognized Don Haskins as this is the guy who gave me a chance when nobody else gave me a chance. And that was accurate. I gave him a chance when nobody else but It was much easier for uh, nighttime. It was much easier for Bob Knight to be, you know, to be, you know, to be, to give him a chance when, you know, because a respected coach like Don Haskins had, no one would have touched him. Like him.
1: Russ, you still there? Some. All right, you're having, you're having some cell phone difficulties right now, Russ. You're, you're cutting in and out uh, during the interview, so. I, uh, it's Probably the coronavirus. Oh, Can you hear me now? Now you sound. Now you sound fine. Now you sound okay. fine. By the way, um, uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned you know Knight's friendship with Haskins, which led to the Ellenberger hiring. I understand that Norm was also in that clique. That you know, as even though Coach Haskins and Coach Knight were longtime friends, apparently um, Bobby Knight and Norm Ellenberger had been friends for years and years prior to him joining up in 1990.
3: I think that's right, but you, I think when you mentioned that Don Haskins was friends with a, a, another coach, it's important to keep in mind, Coach Haskins was not the kind of guy who would call anybody every week. I mean, he barely talked to us every week, and so I think he'd go fishing with Knight once a year, and that counted as them being good friends, but I don't remember ever Bob Knight ever calling our office, and I don't remember Don Haskins ever calling Bob That might have happened when I wasn't around, but my, my point is, you know, like I've I was, you know, if I was good friends with this coach or that coach at another school, I'd talk to him every week or two. But I think with, with, you know, Coach Haskins had a very much a separate life and was, uh, you know, had a, you know, it wasn't like he was chummy with anybody.
1: We're talking right now with uh, Norm uh, Ellen. Let me talk right now with Russ Bradburn here on Sports Talk as we continue our conversation. Take me back to the season where Coach Haskins um, was under the weather, and as a result, Coach Ellenberger took over as acting coach because uh, Coach Haskins was advised by his doctors to recover and not come back to coaching. And ultimately, that was one of those years in which uh, the Miners ended up winning the WAC title.
3: Well, I think this is – this is well, This here's another scoop for you, Steve. I always got the feeling that Coach Haskins could have came back if he wanted, but he was so – we were all sort of so enamored with Norm and wanted Norm to do well. And I think that part of what he was up to is if he stepped away and let Norm have a great year, that maybe Norm could get a job out of it. And I think that was when the Chaminade job came open, but I think Norm had wanted to get a bigger job. I think he'd have wanted to be at a – at a big state school. And of course that, that never happened. But my feeling was always that coach Haskins voice had come back and that he could have came back and coached if he wanted to. And so I always, now that I'm an academic, it makes sense to me. I think I would call it his sabbatical year. I think Don took that as a sabbatical year to recharge his batteries. And it was a way to, you know, it was a way to, to, you know, give Norm a chance and make Norm. And I think that's part of what, you know, when Norm was so crushed at Don Haskins funeral, I think Norm, of course, understood that and recognized that that this is the guy that you know. I mean, in a way, you could argue that Don Hastings made Norm a head coach again in Division One basketball, and no one else would do that. And I but think, I think uh, you, it,
1: had, you know what though. Uh, it also shows Russ the amount of confidence that coach Haskins had in in norm and he knew that he didn't have to come back because he knew exactly what the that you know they were getting with uh, with coach Ellenberger as acting head coach.
3: I think that's absolutely right and and I don't you'd have a hard time finding anybody that didn't think that norm was a brilliant coach. And the other sort of famous we're well, not famous but behind the scenes story is you know Tim Floyd told me this story is that you know, Ellenberger had those great teams at New Mexico with Michael Cooper, and they were athletic and quick. And And here's uh, poor Don Haskins. He's playing with Steve Yellen. And, uh, you know, and uh, you know, and Jim Bowden and Tim Crenshaw. They're all great guys and solid players, but it was hard to win the whack with those guys. And, and, and uh, Don Haskins called Tim Floyd in after Norm beat him again and said uh, that somewhere along the line, it became, you know, someone re- thought that, that Don Haskins could only coach kids like Steve Yellen and coach the untalented kids, and that you know that kind of thing. And he said, "Go get me some of those. Go get me some of those athletes like Ellenberger has." And of course, you know that was it was this great green light for Tim Floyd to just go after great players and and you know try to you know try to make the most of it with best great players. And that was Tim Floyd told me that story himself, and I think that was exactly what happened. And there was a great regeneration and. In Don Heston's career, remember, he had had three losing teams in his career, and they were all sort of right before Tim Floyd sort of got things going.
1: It's a great point. So we continue our conversation right now with longtime UTEP assistant Russ Bradbird, who is reflecting uh, on Norm Ellenberger, Our subject uh, during the Don Haskins Hour coming up at six o'clock here on six hundred ESPN El Paso. I, I do want to get back to when Coach Ellenberger took over to- took over the team. Did your relationship with Coach change? Did he have the exact same um, you know way of looking at business as head coach when he was when he was uh, running the team for, for coach Haskins then, or did he shift a little bit when his responsibilities increased?
3: Wait, are you asking me, did he, did he copy? Was he sticking strictly with the Don Haskins style? Do you mean, or I'm not sure. you can, can uh, and
1: and also his personality did, was Norm Ellenberger as acting head coach, the same as Norm Ellenberger as assistant coach?
3: Absolutely. You know, like it was, yeah, he was still fun and carefree and, you know, Norm, that's why I thought Norm could, uh, be a great NBA coach, he could forget quickly. He didn't hold a grudge. Like, if a guy, you know, missed his assignment or missed a layup or whatever, Norm could quickly forgive him and throw him back in the game. Whereas I think, you know, I I know with, with, for example, with Lou Henson, if a guy screwed up an assignment, he might wind up on the bench the rest of the game. I'd say the the same with Chris Jans, who's now the the aggie head coach. But Norm was very forgiving that way, which to me seemed... very conducive to the NBA, where there's just it's a longer game and a longer season and there's a lot more ups and downs. But, uh, yeah, Norm, Norm you know, I think Norm what really, what, one of the things, Norm was a great, great teacher of post-play, and I think he was really instrumental of uh, Greg Foster and Antonio Davis, you know, both wound up with long careers in the NBA, is I think what Norm was able to convince them of, and I wind up talking about this on the air sometimes for Aggie Vision, is he was able to convince Greg Foster and Antonio Davis. It's all about footwork, and uh, and it's all about. It's not about uh, vertical. It's about, uh, it's about horizontal. About gaining ground. It's a battle for position. It's not a battle for a sky above you. It's a battle for the ground at your feet. And I think Greg and Antonio really bought into that. I think they they came to understand. And uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to blow my own horn here, Steve, but I can't because they're really it was it was Greg Greg Lackey and Norm Ellenberger that you know, I remember Norm having Greg stay after practice with Antonio and Greg every day. You know, I was more focused on dribbling and ball handling and that kind of thing. But Lackey and, and Norm I think really did an incredible job with with Greg Foster and Antonio because they you know, and if you'll remember back to Antonio, he could run and jump for you know, for being a young guy, but he was not he was not very skilled and he didn't have great footwork and that all that all changed, I think, thanks to Ellenberger and uh, thanks to Ellenberger and Greg Lack.
1: Since they helped develop the post game for Antonio yes. Davis and Greg Foster, and you talked about yeah, you my, were you know you were more about the, the dribbling skills. Does that mean that uh, you deserve uh, some credit for cre- helping uh, Tim Hardaway create the killer crossover and Utep two step?
3: We're supposed to be talking about Ellenberger, but I will say this: is
0: that
3: from <laughs> the day Tim Hardaway got to campus. He was already a great dribbler. And when I go see him play in the summer league with his high school team, he did all the things with the ball that you saw him do in the NBA. He did, you know, I think, but I think what happened with uh, Tim is Don Haskins didn't. He didn't go for the fancy, you know, fancy dribbling and the show off, you know, the showy moves that, that you kept 2 steps and the things that Hardaway sort of made famous. And I think there was a, a bit of chafing for. Tim Hardaway at that point, but I think what where Don Haskins really helped Tim Hardaway is Tim could do all those things before he came, but what he couldn't do was, what he was less effective at is running a team, shooting perimeter shots, and playing defense, and he improved at those things so dramatically that not, he wound up with an all-around game, and so on the one hand, I think had Tim Hardaway gone somewhere where they played a crazy fast-break fast style, he could have shown off what he could do, but he would have never gotten as good at the things he couldn't do. And so I think, again, I think it was difficult for Tim. I remember once coming back from the summer league game, Steve, after watching Hardaway play and telling Coach Haskins, I think we should do some you know, screen on the ball for you know, Coach Haskins. We never screened on the ball for the dribbler. And I, and, uh, I told him, I, it, yeah, I saw Tim Hardaway just sort of keep people alive in the Chicago summer leagues and said, you know, said we should screen on the ball, and Coach Haskins said, Oh, hell, Russ, he's dribbling the ball too much already. And, uh, and so Tim could do this stuff and the cro- killer crossover. He could do all that stuff in his sleep. But I think what, what, what it forced him to do. So anyway, to answer your question, no, he was already a great dribbler. But one of the great things with Tim is that people thought, because I was the dribbling coach and Tim was a great dribbler, that I must have somehow taught Tim Hardaway. But the truth is, I don't think I really I, – I learned a lot more from Tim than he learned from me.
1: I know also, and you will hear a lot about this during the interview, that uh, Norm's passion for the outdoors was almost uh, the same as his passion for, for coaching basketball. And he loved to fish. He um, loved to get out in his, uh, his boat or his canoe. He talks about that with Coach Haskins, and uh, did, did you kind of know that outdoors side to, to Norm Ellenberger at UTEP, or was it more basketball-related, for the most part? Did you guys did you guys do a lot off the court?
3: No, not not a, Well, with Norm, we'd go to lunch every day, you know, and he'd he would, he would, go to lunch every day with Norm, and uh, but I was not, you know, I'm a Chicago guy. I just have never understood fishing, Steve. Like, you're trying to outsmart a fish? What's the big deal? But I and I think that I, I was never able to relate to Don Aspen or Norm in those terms. I'm a city guy. I mean, my idea of an outdoor trip is we'll take the, the L train or the bus, um, and so I, I was never able to relate to him in that way. And I think that you know I was never close to you know like I know that Tim Floyd has gone hunting and fishing with Don Aspen, and I never did. It just wasn't my thing. I'm a Chicago guy. But but um, but yeah, Norm did love he did love fishing. He did love the outdoors and. He really, really loved the Southwest. You know, he you know he had the he never stopped wearing the turquoise jewelry. But he was a tremendous aficionado of, of uh, Mexican food and border culture and New Mexican food and that kind of thing. He just loved the Southwest, and maybe that was why he didn't want to go to Hawaii. I don't know because remember Norm grew up in you know he's from Indiana, and and I think you know going to I going back to you know the University of Indiana IU Indiana University. I think that in some ways was sort of a dream come true for him. But in retrospect, I don't think he was going to go to St. John's of New York or University of Washington in Seattle. He loved the desert, and he loved Indiana.
1: He did spend a year uh, late in life coaching the New York Liberty, which I found really interesting. He did that uh, when when he was uh, about 80. He was an assistant coach for the New York Liberty for a season.
3: I'd forgotten about that was that the uh, WNBA team?
1: Yes, WNBA, correct. <laughs> yeah. And I
3: could see where Norm would be good with that because he had a, you know, he he wasn't a scream and curse guy, you know, he was a you know, he'd be, he was more of a build your confidence guy and that was why I think he was so effective with Don Haskins is that, you know, you know, coach Haskins would openly tell us. I remember the first day Greg Lackey was ever at practice with us. You know, Greg was a terrific coach and he was, you know, after everybody and you know, Yelling at this, and Haskins called us in afterwards and said, I'm going to tear them down. You guys have to build them up. And so what he was saying was, we can't all, and he said this, we can't all yell at them. You guys got to build them up. And so Greg quickly adjusted, but I had seen that. And, you know, for me, and I think for Norm too, that was more natural. I was never a, you know, I think in my entire career, Steve, I got one technical foul in Ireland for stomping my foot. I mean, I just wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't a yelling. So that was natural to me to be positive with the players and be upbeat. And and they would unite. They would kind of unite in their resentment of Coach Haskins being so hard on them. And it was, it was pretty simple reverse psychology is, you know, you could just see the players gathered together and say saying, you could hear them do it sometimes during timeouts when Haskins was done. They'd say, let's show this son of a bitch we can play defense. And, of course, you know, then they did
1: you can follow russ on twitter at russ bradbird go to his website russbradbird.com by the way before i wrap things up with you how's the book doing all the dreams we've dreamed
3: well steve I, I, forgive me for doing this but if you'll go to my facebook page today there's a steve Yellen, the great the great steve Yellen, who we've steve and i've partnered on stuff for so long but well, we're doing a fundraiser tonight to help sean harrington the gun violence survivor it's on my Facebook page. Steve has put on. It's incredible. It's a one-hour concert of all these great musicians from around the country, all singing a song and dedicating it to Sean. And the, I think we're hoping for any kind of little donation. We're trying to get Sean Harrington his first in six years since the shooting. He still can't get in and out of his own apartment, but we found a wheelchair-accessible condo, the only one in the building right across from the right across the hall from where he lives now. So if you go to my Facebook page. You can link into the Zoom uh, the Zoom thing, and, it, and it's a one-hour concert, and, you know, donate five bucks or whatever you've got to, to help Sean Harrington get his independence.
1: That's awesome. And I'm looking at some of the people that are going to be performing. There's some great names. Bree Bagwell from Cruces. You've also got Jim Ward on board. There's a lot of good musicians helping out with this one.
3: Jim Ward has been a Jim Ward and Sean Harrington have become friends. Who would have thought that the... Maybe El Paso's best rock and roll guy in the last 40 years would become friends with Sean Harrington. And Brianna Bagwell, the great country, Bree Bagwell, the Nashville country western singer, she was one of my little dribblers, one of my pistoleros when she was a kid in uh, in Las Cruces. So a lot of people are pitching in. See, it's on my Facebook page. Uh, the, you know, there's a, and there's a GoFundMe link and that kind of thing. We're just trying to get Sean Harrington the independence that he deserves.
1: Nicely done. All right. Great job as always, Russ. Thanks for the time. Thanks for sharing and look forward to the next time we get to talk to you.
3: But now, Steve, those were some real secrets I revealed today. I want everyone listening not to reveal any of those secrets, but go to the, go to the the Facebook page and you can, you can help Sean.
1: Done deal. All right. Way to go, Russ. We'll talk to you soon. Take care of yourself. Russ Bradbert, former minor assistant coach, Aggie coach, and, boy he does a little bit of everything and now he's fundraising for his good pal Sean Harrington tonight on his Facebook page
0: 600 espnl com.